it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. Hi there, you're listening to Local Trouble on the One Sensational Shot Network. This is the podcast where we talk about the franchise that matters most to us, that's Star Wars. First off, Mr. James Taylor, regular host of Local Trouble, is sadly not with us today. He uh, is in Babytown, uh, and that's all That's all I'll say. Um, he's firmly in Babytown, and we raise a glass to him, Penny, and little Cleo. Um, I think we haven't done an episode since uh, Cleo was born in December. So, uh, yeah, certainly um, a huge congratulations from all at one sensational yeah. shot. Chin chin. But, but the other uh, bit of housekeeping is, yes, of course, Fletcher Walton's here, who tends to be on uh, the sister shows, uh, Electronic Labyrinth, etc. And this is all about Star Wars and the, the Disney era. I think um, when we were talking about how the best to do a reaction show to um, The Rise of Skywalker... The reason we're doing this now in, in March is is simply because, A, we're a little lazy, and B, um, more just around, we thought it was actually a, a better idea to let the dust settle a little bit, and then reflect on how we felt about the Disney era, um, and and what that means in the context of, of Star Wars as a franchise. So um, that's what we're going to do today. If you want a Rise of Skywalker review, all you ever have to do is Google Rise of Skywalker good or Rise of Skywalker bad, and you will have you know plenty of reviews there to, to keep you uh, to keep you mulling over. But um, here today, you've got Luke Little Boy, myself, and, and Fletcher Walton, uh, and yeah, we're just going to reflect a little bit wider, I think, on uh, on on how the Disney era has has played out over the past few years. Obviously, I've been talking about retiring for several years now. I wanted to get into sort of another stage of life where. I'm not in the film business anymore, and I don't have to run a corporation. And it occurred to me one day that the perfect person to take over the company was Kathy. It's just such a perfect fit. And I felt that I really wanted to put the company somewhere in a larger entity, which would protect it. Disney is a huge corporation. They have all kinds of capabilities and facilities, so that there's a lot of uh, strength that is gained by this. The great thing about Disney, again, as we were saying before, is that, you know, it's between the parks and all the things they've got going, it's great that we have a chance probably to expand that. And, uh, you know, there's lots and lots of opportunities at Disney that we wouldn't have at any other studio. There's huge opportunity, given the tremendous success that Disney's had with Marvel and with Pixar, and now adding Lucasfilm to that. I think, um, I think we couldn't be at a better home. When I first made Star Wars, everybody in Hollywood said, well, this is a movie Disney should have made. Disney defines family entertainment, and in many ways, it's the best company possible to take Star Wars into the future. So, on that note, Fletch, we'll talk about where we were in 2012, we'll think about the box office and such, and really the future of Star Wars, where we think it can go in the future. And indeed, you know, if if, um, you want to go through the podcast feed, we did a similar thing uh, a couple of years back. Um, when we talk about Jurassic Park's sequel problem and then what we would possibly do with it. But to kick us off, Fletch, um, where were you in 2012 when, when the big purchase went down? Uh, what was your memory of, of where you were? Because this was big, big news 
And, uh, you know, I remember it being mentioned on Newsnight, you know, that this is how big it wow. was because it, yeah. it happened live. It, it, it happened live. Jeremy Paxman was very uh, dismissive of it. He said, oh, since we've been on air, you've probably heard that Star Wars has been purchased by Disney or Lucasfilm has been purchased by Disney. But if you don't give a flying saucer, <laughs> uh, here's something else. I can't remember what he segued into. It was a, 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 it was a, um, it was over the credits because obviously he didn't care. And I remember actually since uh, Paxman left Newsnight, he he's made comments on how the produ- you know it's run by a load of twenty somethings or so, <laughs> and the producers are a load of twenty somethings. And uh, he was like, yeah, I don't think the agenda was for me anymore. But um, you know, where, where were you on that that fateful day back in uh, autumn, I think, twenty twelve? That's so typically and discouragingly flippant of Paxman. It recalls when Bowie went, uh, I have found on YouTube a brief interview where Paxman was relentlessly dismissive of the internet in about 99, 2000. And David Bowie saying, there's some really amazing things that they're doing on there. And I think it's going to be a, a great vessel for, for music going forward into the 21st century. Paxman saying, but really? And he's been proven so foolish for that. And I think that, yeah, um, it was... That per- that was a major tech purchase, you know, mm. in terms of if we think about um, Disney Animation Studios and Pixar and Apple as it is and all of the uh, uh, tech properties, but also all of the blue chip studios out there. Um, Star Wars being sold to Disney is no smaller than uh, 20th Century Fox being sold to Disney. I've, I've recently I, I think I. I'm trying to remember which picture it was, but I think I saw the last picture that will carry 20th Century Fox. Now it's 20th Century Studios. Did you hear mm. about that recently? Yeah, they, they, they no, removed no. that. Um, the way that I can't recall exactly how I felt when that purchase went down because my memory of it has been coloured uh, by how I've retroactively begun to um, recondition how I feel about it. Is the, mm. is the mad thing. Um, mm. I realised... I, I watched uh, Rise of Skywalker very late in the end. I watched it in February. I think it, I had this ticket stub near me, but I think it was the 8th or maybe the 15th of February that I finally mm. saw it with my pal Bonnie, um, which, again, speaks to... not. I'm, and I'm not speaking, as, as we said, I'm not speaking about the, uh, the critical reviews of that particular picture, but that rather speaks to the diminishing cultural impact of the Star Wars trilogies. Since I can't properly remember my exact reactions, I, I know what it was like going to see Force Awakens for the first time, but how did you feel when the news went down, as you've described on Newsnight, with Paxman being so rude about everything? Well, it was, it was mixed, but it was, it was mostly elation, um, yeah. because you have to remember, as a, as a true blue hardcore Star Wars fan, um, since Revenge of the Sith came out in 2005... Um, that was the year I went to university, and I remember thinking to myself, um, okay, time to put childish things away. Star Wars has now been with you and grown up with you um, throughout your teens, and now the circle is complete, the saga's over, um, and we're putting it to bed. Um, and then I had um, tried to watch the first season of Clone Wars, hadn't enjoyed it that much because it was very much aimed at a younger audience. However, that show quickly started to mature. And then every year I'd be buying the season, because uh, I didn't have um, Sky TV or something in my 20s when I was um, 
living uh, with mates. But every year I would buy the Star Wars um, box set for the Clone Wars. So I was then following the Clone Wars, apart from the shaky first year, I, I quit from season two to three onwards, I was buying the box set every year. And um, that was the one flame that was keeping Star Wars alive, was this thing. And it was, it was all from Lucas. Um, he had his fingerprints all over it, along with Dave Filoni. And um, the Clone Wars grew into a... a Probably, the, well, certainly the best animated television program of all time in terms of its ambition, its scope, um, the quality of the voice work, the animation, writing. Um, and it added to the Star Wars mythology um, in an incredible way as well. It really fleshed out the prequels. Um, it really added to um, the Anakin character arc as well. So it almost felt like this um, essential add-on, really, to the prequels. And because it was coming directly from Lucas, it had that... Um, stamp of kind of authenticity to it as well so um, I had been going with the Clone Wars for so long and then uh, and then when this news came out that because he'd been so adamant that and he'd even said there's very specific plans that there's not going to be any more Star Wars films to be made after my death so I thought it was all over I remember my dad saying at the time that's rubbish Um, (laughs) someone will make money out of it and yeah. he, he said, if there's one true thing in this world, if someone can make money out of something, they will. And uh, I remember saying, Dad, no, you don't understand. He said that he won't make any more, and, and he's left them in, in his will that there won't be any more made. And my dad just didn't believe it for a minute. And then, you know, sure as eggs are eggs, my dad was vindicated, as so often happens with his cynical opinions. And, um, yeah, the, uh, the, the news of the purchase came through, and there was genuine elation because I'd always respected and kind of admired the close relationship he had with Disney um Bob Iger was um was working um as a more junior executive at the time of the Young Indie TV show and he was the one who took the punt on Young Indie um with Lucas and uh that that relation that that had gone a long way and of course all the way through the 80s and, and early 90s um Lucas had had a close relationship with uh, Disney theme parks, uh, working on Star Tours, uh, the Indiana Jones ride, and uh, Captain EO with Michael Jackson, which he wrote and directed those portions of. So um, I always felt like Disney was this natural home for Star Wars. And uh, when the news came through, because of the way they'd been working with Pixar and there's this element of kind of, you know, they give Pixar creative freedom to, to, to make the pictures that they're doing. Pixar's this great incubator of creative talent. I thought, you know what, this this can be brilliant. This can be really, really, really fantastic. And my mind was firing away at, like, what what the possibilities could be. Um, and the fact that they were calling... They, they said the first thing we're doing is making episodes 7, 8, and 9 based on um, outlines that Lucas has put together. I thought, well, this is the perfect way to kick it off, and I was, I was <laughs> just, I was, I was pretty elated. I really, really was, yeah. and um, so yeah, I remember watching all of the Kennedy Lucas YouTube videos, which always were a bit awkward, um, <laughs> and they're they're still on there. They're still on, uh, they're still on the Star Wars YouTube channel when um, George has, um, or he'd already appointed Kathy a, a few months prior, but then um, made the Disney sale, and he's kind of selling it in as. Um, this is this is going to be really good for Star Wars. This is going to be good um, for Disney, and 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 Kathy is, you know, in full agreement, saying that the 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 opportunities and the potential is endless. Um, and at that point, Lucas was supposed to stay on as consultant. So I think at the time, I could, I felt like I could stomach it, and and um, and not only that, I was, I was cautiously optimistic about what Star Wars could be, and you know, we, we were very much thinking Star Wars movies for the next hundred years. Yeah, but then 
what, what reality has set in, you know, over the course of this era. I suppose what we'll talk about is I'd like to kick off with two things, two thoughts. One is I think Lucas knew exactly what he was doing. I think he knew he had to make money. And I think he knew that Star Wars was kind of going to be diminishing returns. Um, And I think he also knew how specifically, A, a, how you're just in trouble with a passionate, such a passionate fan base. And the, the other thing I think is he knows how limiting it truly is. So one of the things that they were doing when they tried to sell it was um, come up with, uh, you know, they literally had lawyers trying to ascertain all of the IP that Lucas owned, all the characters that were created in books and novels and comics, you know, how were they definitely owned by Lucasfilm? Um, and also trying to set up the story and and pitch the story to Disney execs. And um, I've certainly read some of these pitches that were put together around, this is the Jedi, this is the Sith, these are the goodies, these are the baddies, this is how Star Wars works. A far cry from, um, you know, the Death Star and rescuing the princess, which is really what the first film is about. You know, trying to set up this real big picture canvas narrative. So um, I think the two things for me is I think Lucas got out the right time and he knew what he was doing. But the second thing is Star Wars is limiting, more limiting than people realise. I think Star Wars actually when it comes down to brass tacks, has to have stormtroopers, has to have um, lightsabers, has to have um, some kind of family connection of some description. Um, if not, people start to think, mm, it's not really Star Wars. Creatively, it's incredibly limiting. I think George on some level knew that. All of that which you've just said, those are all of the debates that I found myself having once I finally saw Rise of Skywalker. It was only when I was in the auditorium and... Some way through it, I suppose. I didn't find it a particularly engaging film. There's plenty that I liked about it because, and this is without artifice, I say I really do enjoy puppets. And Luke and I used to joke about this. We used to say how um, Abrams was making so very clear in short video testimonials that Force Awakens would be full of Muppets because that's what Star Wars fans want. We know what you like and it's animatronics. <laughs> yeah. But I genuinely do. <laughs> and who's the little guy in Rise of Skywalker that everyone Babu, enjoys? Babu Frick, who, who is genuinely... One of the all-time greatest Star Wars characters, I think. He's, he's yeah, wonderful. So uh, Shirley Henderson comes on screen. Uh, sorry, uh, Babu, voiced by Shirley Henderson, comes on screen. Um, and I, I realised, in that auditorium, I realised I do like that. Because I like the Ewoks. They say, mm. yup. There's, for a number of reasons. And it's not just that it's not just the Vietnam allegory. And it's not just that they represent, in, in its truest form, uh, a grassroots rebellion rising up. You know, peasants. A mm. peasant's revolt rising mm. up against an, an oppressive force. But it's also because I do find them genuinely cute. I find ingenuity in their design uh, and the different designs. And I've, mm. I've, I've always thought that that's what Star Wars is about. It's um, turning a th- how many? A hundred, a thousand creative people onto mm. a vast canvas and allowing them all to have one tiny, lovely little idea. Um, mm. But it was when I was in the auditorium as I say, not particularly engaged, but going along with the ride, half an hour in and I realised um, I'd been working under a, a misapprehension the entire Disney era when those new films were announced uh, without George Lucas mm. and I was ignorant of his low-level participation. I hadn't known that... Because, Luke, as you say, he Lucas pointed them in the directions he thought the story should go. Now, Which they then rejected. That, and that's that's the thing. I had thought they'd been rejected, and I thought what was happening was that you know uh, by their own um, their own opinion of him was of uh, an archaic dinosaur 
who mm. they no longer needed. What they needed was what he created, and they had no uh, no interest at all in any of his new ideas, right? Mm-hmm. Or or yeah. even you know his old new ideas mm. uh, on where to take it forward. I thought they dismissed it entirely. And so when we got Force Awakens, followed by the next two, I had thought, right, so this is Star Wars without George Lucas. This is interesting because for a generation of Star Wars fans, George Lucas has been the impediment to Star Wars being good. I don't agree with that, but that was the general perception at the end of the century and into the alts, was that, wow, wouldn't it be great if he didn't do this? Yeah, yeah. Right? And then we get to the the end of the ninth. So so I'm watching the ninth instalment, and I realise, but this is still just the Skywalkers. This is still just George Lucas stuff. And I thought that was what potentially needed to be done in The Force Awakens. I understood that there was a very... There's a, a delicate balance to strike uh, with the existing tri- uh, the existing trio mm. and the new, the three new characters. And uh, mm. I felt that one of the problems with The Force Awakens was that uh, Boyega, Daisy and Oscar Isaacs and Adam as well, uh, were compelling, interesting new characters mm. that I wanted to spend more time with, but we were hamstrung by having to fit in Carrie, Harrison and Hamill, but it was only by the ninth issue, sorry, it was only by the ninth episode that I realised that this was still George Lucas's Star Wars, and it wasn't a new thing disregarding his old ideas, and it was still so beholden to everything he'd written 45 years ago which is why i think um they're desperate to get away from it as um uh, uh, there was never any talk at the purchase that 789 was the end of the skywalker saga i think what they've realized going through this is that they are hamstrung by what the story has to be um and then they're so therefore this was quickly marketed as this is the end of of everything this is the culmination of of nine episodes and 40 years worth of storytelling so I think um, I do think the new era, whatever that looks like, there's the High Republic era, which is going to be the, a new books and comics um, multimedia um, thing that's happening this summer. Um, whether that is an indication of the new films that are going to come, so it's some 200 years before the Phantom Menace, um, which also made me laugh because I thought, oh, they're, they're kind of doing prequels again. Um, but yeah. uh, but w- whether they choose to make movies of that, I don't know. But um, so I don't know what era we'll go to um, in the future. But I, I do know that they want, they're very keen for a clean slate. I, I almost wonder, I, th- I, th- I think that they, they, ha- they took the low-hanging fruit of, oh, we'll do separate, se- episodes 7, 8 and 9, announce that in 2012. People are going to like foam at the mouth for it. But um, actually it was this pact with the devil because if they'd have just started with a clean slate from the off, maybe, um, maybe that would have, um, been better for them creatively and, and you'd given them more avenues and not allowed themselves to, they essentially wrote themselves into a corner, I think pretty yeah. quickly, you know? Yeah. That's what I, that's what I found really disappointing was, um, as I've said before on local trouble, the message for, since the prequels, the message has been that this guy who invented this thing that we love so many years ago has no idea what to do with it. He is the worst thing to ever happen to Star Wars, and if we only get rid of Lucas, then maybe we can have the Star Wars that we all deserve, in quotes. Uh, And then he stepped away from the project, and they just did more George Lucas-style stuff. Mm. Um, And in in an unhappy medium, I think, wherein 
and, and to, to go back to my experience watching Rise of Skywalker, again, I don't think much about, because I'm a cineast first and a Star Wars fan second, I don't think much about Star Wars unless I'm watching the films or discuss, or, you know, critically discussing the films. And it was only when, again, I sat down in the auditorium and I'm an hour in and I realised to myself, oh yeah, it was the case that they didn't know if they could get Harrison Ford back and so they wrote the character of Poe Dameron mm. and then Fordy came back. And mm. that meant Poe Dameron had nothing to do, so he's in removed the from one. the picture. Yeah, for, yeah. for an hour, yeah. and um, finding room for Carrie Harrison and Hamill when really there was only significant plot line for maybe one and a half or two of those characters. Yeah. Finding room for that, what, while what, also, w- sorry, go on. No, no, no. I was just I was interrupting. I didn't mean to. Yeah, traditionally you'd have had. You'd have almost had one, wouldn't you? The mentor, yeah. the mentor character, and 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 that was um, they made that Han in in seven. Um, it you know could have been Luke, but they made it Han, and uh, there was only really room for the one, you know. Um, yeah, but I, I, I think a lot, a lot of hardcore fans they do. This is this is the thing. A lot of people thought that this was going to be all three of them together, the final hurrah, one last adventure for the three of them, and obviously they didn't quite get that. I always admired the decision to not do that um, because I think had you done it, you would have just overshadowed the existing characters, the, the new characters. Sorry, yeah, who yeah. who who were all like you say were all compelling. I fell in love with all three of those characters in the first movie. And I wanted more stories of those guys. Again, <laughs> one man Star Wars is, is not another man Star Wars. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it's different. And, and so if, if there's a whole load of people out there that thought there was going to be, this is going to be the, the Mark, um, Carrie and Harrison show for like yeah. another whole trilogy. And then we'll get a trilogy with the new characters. Whereas for me, it was like, can we, we need to kind of get those guys out of the way just in the first picture. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and when we talk about this as well, I'm approaching it from... I'm approaching it from the angle, the construction, the writing of a competent film. And it would be it would be much a a better set of films could have been made if, as you say, broadly speaking, Force Awakens foregrounded one mentor character in Han Solo. Uh, uh, Last Jedi foregrounded Luke and the third one and this is where they're undone by circumstances but the third one foregrounded carry that would make more that would be that would work better for me and would allow more room for the four new characters and a, a greater justification for them to be uh, spinning around because too often it felt like i think boyega's a i think boyega's a fine actor but too often it felt like there wasn't room for him in what is ostensibly his own film mm. and uh yeah uh, for me an imbalance of old and new stymied this, uh, the initial pictures of the Disney era in combination with an unfortunate um, set of circumstances wherein if we were to... If we'd known that Carrie Fisher was going to die, she would have been Holdo's character. Mm. And she would have been the one that flies... Uh, you know the transport into the Imperial Star Destroyer. Or this has never, this is, this is, this has never come out um, officially, so I don't know the real reason for this. But I'll never understand why that happened. I'm, I, I know there's a lot of people out there that don't like the Laura Dern character in the Last Jedi. I, I love Laura Dern. I don't have a huge problem with it, but it never felt natural that she was written into it, only to then be killed off at the end of the movie. Um, so, for me. Uh, I, I, this has never been officially said, but I can only think that Carrie just wasn't up to the acting task of um, of carrying the whole film. So, um, 
that's the only thing I can think um, as to why she's out of it for an hour. Um, yeah. I, I, I think that that wasn't... I, I, my point is, in counter to yours, I don't think it's relevant if we knew she was going to pass away or not, tragically. I, I don't think she could carry the whole picture. I don't think she was in a fit state, um, to be honest with you. Um, that's interesting. I, I think it was a big deal to get her out of semi-retirement, to do, acting yeah. retirement. Um, you know, she was doing other stuff, but I think it was a kind of a big deal to get her to do this stuff at all. And I think she had anxiety around um, doing the job properly. Yeah, yeah, I th- yeah. That's fair. Um, another, another thing which impacts this third trilogy is that I'm thinking about how to put this. You know, you know Ridley Scott's Prometheus. Yep. <laughs> some, right. Some of the problems with Prometheus are that it's a um, a modern film uh, made. It's a film made in the last ten years mm. that still acts like a '70s slash or an '80s horror picture. Mm. Ridiculous character decisions where genius scientists uh, find an alien race for the first time and begin acting with it as though they're Rick Moranis talking to the dog monster in Ghostbusters. You know, I think yeah. I've got a milk bone here, buddy. And yeah. that's I, I find that that's one of the slight problems, one of the slight disconnects between the original trilogy and this sequel trilogy is that nobody expected Star Wars, Empire or Return of the Jedi to be particularly well acted. Harrison Ford's a fine character actor. I think Mark Hamill is is pretty good actually, and really, what they do with his role in I think it's really the, I think it's the performance of his life in Last Jedi. I think yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of a lifetime achievement award. Yeah, uh, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think he's, with the exception of maybe the Big Red One. I don't think he's ever been better. And definitely, the way that he's matured, uh, grown mm. into his face. Mm. Um, and grown into his abilities, he's perfect for that role. And Carrie Fisher's an okay actress, but, you know, to what extent is she... Whereas, if you contrast that with a sequel trilogy, which employed Oscar Isaac, who I think is a tremendous actor, Adam Driver might be the best young actor working today, of mm. either gender. Um, mm. And what I'm trying to explain is that expectations are greater. You look at the Marvel pictures, for instance, Robert Downey, Mark mm. Ruffalo, Scarlett mm. Johansson, they're mm. excellent actors. Mm. And we didn't, you know, you wouldn't have expected that for um, when Star Wars was made and during the 80s, genre pictures didn't require that mm. level of acting ability. Yeah. Flash Gordon. Nor would, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Nor would they have expected it. And what you got in the 70s and in the 80s and maybe even into the 90s, um, you know, you may have splurged on a British baddie like Charles Dance or... Yeah, Cushing, That's and, it, yeah. and maybe a, a, an expensive supporting actor, yeah. uh, a, a mentor character and like Alec Guinness. Guinness. Yeah. Um, but you, there was no way that you could have... That. This is one of the things that's been interesting to me in the last 10 years of cinema. I mean, even if you look at um, a franchise like Fast and the Furious, Charlize Theron's entered it. You know, you've got mm. the meathead guys, but Charlize is a really good actress. Mm. Uh, it's it's but it's no longer surprising to see someone like that in a big franchise. Mm. That's just how it goes. And what Marvel somewhat changed things there, where they've got all these people on retainer. And so mm. what I mean to say is that um, the sequel trilogy is made in a very different way in some regards to the original trilogy, where by today's standards, better actors are required. Again, Laura Dern. Mm. Just has a Laura Dern has what if we were to add up all the roles in this in the sequel trilogy she'd be like fifteenth twelfth build Laura mm. Dern I, she, again one of the the best actors of our lifetime 
mm. and mm. she's you know in something for forty minutes and doesn't get much gets a kind <laughs> of a heroic ending. But um, the, the 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 production of these things has completely changed from what was meant to be pulp sci-fi and not even sci-fi, just space opera. And I say yeah. just, but you know what I mean. These are yeah. <clears throat> these yeah. are pulpy things, as you said, Flash Gordon. Um, yeah. And so yeah, there's a there's a constant tension I feel uh, about the grandiosity that these pictures are meant to have when really they're rooted in something different and that's what we got in the prequels uh there are it's fair to say that the prequel there are many ways in which the prequels don't work and that they're slightly boring films and that the acting is wooden but lucas was working from uh a model where the acting was wooden and that that wasn't to its detriment yeah well, I mean, now, now's a good time to talk about the, the, the nine-piece hole, because I thought that they um, had some real balls when they um, announced 7, 8, and 9. I thought, if you're going to call them 7, 8, and 9, those are, some, those are some big brass balls that you've got, because you do have to carry on a story arc, and you have to justify why, those, why you're calling it Episode 7, and not just... Yeah. Star Wars: The Force Awakens, which they could have done in a sense. They could have yeah. dropped. They could have dropped the episode seven from it, called it <laughs> Star Wars: The Force Awakens, and said, "Well, this is a new thing." Um, and people might have been a lot more accepting to like rehashing the Death Star plot again and all that kind of thing because you're like, "Oh, well, I guess they're sort of half rebooting it or whatever." But uh, I guess people would have got funny about the reboot word, um, even though it was a soft reboot. But um, anyway, my point is that um, in terms of the arc. You had the original three were very clearly um, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, um, very well documented that that was you know, a source of inspiration for Lucas and he and Campbell became friends in the 80s and um, he even gave Campbell a private screening at the ranch one day of the three original pictures in sort of the mid 80s or 86 or something. The prequels changed the narrative a bit to be um, Anakin Skywalker centric. So the the narrative shifted from this hero's journey of Luke Skywalker to the the story of Anakin Skywalker um and and Darth Vader and then this six episode arc kind of made um sense in a different light he brought in this chosen one um prophecy uh kind of um and you know you can it's kind of lazy storytelling to an extent when you always have a chosen one and then you're like oh well I guess now now it's just this way of telling the audience we have to be invested in this person neo neo in the matrix is the one anakin is the chosen one it's this quick way of like hey you don't have to like this guy but um i swear to god i'm telling you you have to like him now so uh, yeah um it's not earned you know but any, anyway yeah. um regardless it, it shifted the narrative to then anakin you know coming of age um and then having this tragedy himself at the end of the the last prequel but then redeeming himself to save his son, and you have this six-episode arc. My point is, if you're going to call them seven, eight, seven, eight, nine, you've got to have some big balls. And what it seems to have done is they were kind of making it up as they went along. I didn't know where they were going with with Force Awakens. It just seemed like they were doing a bit of a reset. And then you know, Ray should have been. It surprised me that they weren't up front. That Ray was like a. Luke's daughter or Han's daughter that that was always vague as to who she was and then you've got um the last jedi which seemed to be setting it all up to be um you don't have to come from a bloodline you can be a hero from anywhere um yeah. the force will be democratized again um and and anyone can have force abilities stuff that really was felt like it was moving away from this idea of the prequels of midi-chlorians and inherited talent 
And now with the third one, I feel like it's it's about House Palpatine and House Skywalker. Yeah. Some Cap Capulets and Montagues thing. And I'm like you call it the Skywalker saga, but actually it's it's just as much now about the Palpatine saga as anything else. So I feel like the story's twisted a lot. And I couldn't tell you if you had to tell me right on the back of a fag packet in one sentence, say what what is the nine episode Star Wars film about? I couldn't tell you anymore. Yeah. I don't know. I made sure that I didn't know the plot details of Nine before I saw it. I was disappointed. I'm always disappointed when... <laughs> I'm always uh, disappointed. Full stop. The, uh, um, I'm, always, I, I'm continually disappointed by cinema that employs what you've just said, which is, uh, of all the people in the world, guess what? You're special. Like Harry yeah. Potter, for instance. It's not yeah. my bag. I would prefer for someone to succeed because of their own ingenuity. Because the original Star Wars, the original Star Wars doesn't quite do that, does it? Like, like we we like Luke because we relate to him because he's stuck in a crummy place, and yeah, that's a bit yeah. like me. I'm out in the countryside, and I want to go to London one day, and and um, we're never told he's special. We're told his father's special, and he's got yeah. a lot to, and, and he never knew him, and I wish I knew him, uh, but. They they never say like oh but you're you're really a wizard, Luke yourself, um, yeah. And and um, you know Obi Wan only goes as far as to say look your father would have wanted you to be with me your uncle won't allow it it's kind of up to you like he never they no one ever says to Luke you're you're the chosen one you're special so it's very very different isn't it? Yeah, I, I find it. I find it regressive, really. I I don't like the moral that. That a story when a, when a story employs that narrative, I don't like what it's saying. I don't like that it's suggesting um, that although you may have many positive attributes, additionally you were born into this, and you were always, you were you were as soon as you know you've always had this within you, not because you have fortitude and ingenuity and application, but because of your genes. That's mm. a, it doesn't chime with me, and I'm, it's not just because I'm a, a kind of working-class, tub-thumping unionist. I didn't need for her to be tied into any of the other stuff. I think it would... I liked when Driver tells her in Last Jedi that you're nothing. Mm. It's, that's, that's, much, that's much more exciting to me, and I think it's a, a much more interesting thing to tell the viewer to say that you can... You don't have to be of any noble lineage to overcome your circumstances. But I know I'm getting into um, the universe of it, and you might reject that outright. But um, at the time, when we were two films in, there was a sense of, why is she so good at everything? You know, Luke hadn't naturally been good at everything, necessarily. He'd had to train really hard, and when he tried to use the Force, he wasn't always good at it. Um, uh, the, you know, when he tries to get his lightsaber at the beginning of Empire, it takes him a long time, you know, to, to, to call it to his hand. All of these things. And Ray had seemed to have been fantastic at everything from the beginning. So everyone was like foaming, a lot of fans were foaming at the mouth, like she must come from somewhere. You know, yeah. she, she's not, she, she's force, she's doing the mind trick on Stormtroopers, Daniel Craig Stormtroopers, you know, she's uh, um, besting Kylo Ren in a lightsaber duel although she's never held a lightsaber yet. And I guess they set up that she could use a melee weapon because she had the big stick. Do you know what I mean? So there was yeah. this, there was this, again, 
painting, writing themselves into a corner. It feels like they've always been writing themselves into corners throughout the, the three films and trying to write yeah. themselves back out of them again. I'll go back to it again. Uh, I was supremely ignorant that a new set of Star Wars films without George Lucas would ne- es- essentially still be Star Wars films with all of the imprint of George Lucas's ideas. And uh, I don't even know if now, if he were to make a new set, a new set of three films, whether he'd do the same thing of you know of, of being born this way, of being born to do it. Mm. Uh, and I, I'm not. I suppose one reason I'm not interested in someone having been born with that ability and and being of of uh, Palpatine's granddaughter is because we already had a, a set of films where the bloke turned out to be of noble lineage. Yeah, that's true. You know, so I, I've seen that once. Yeah, it was interesting when it was done that way. But I'm much more interested in, and these are some of the ideas that. We're imprinted into Ryan Johnson's Last Jedi, which I did enjoy, wherein uh, we can all rise up. We all have that potential and that capacity. Mm. That's one of the things, and I, I've only seen the film once, but I did take from it that a rebellion against the Empire can come from even you know the kid working in the stables. That was part of what it was saying, right? Yeah, the broom boy, yeah. And yeah. Uh, the Colin um, Trevorrow script that's leaked... Um, had more of a connection with the uh, Last Jedi, and Broom Boy even featured as a character. He was in the <laughs> fan so, favorite uh, Broom Boy. Well, yeah, yeah. exactly. But um, and the other uh, another thing that uh, I dislike about what they about another thing that I dislike about uh, Daisy Ridley's character was that I, I find it to be a, a kind of a, a cheap screenwriting shortcut. Um, we don't want to employ the time it takes for somebody to train or uh, so instead we'll just equip them with magic powers and say yeah. that they always had them yeah no yeah when i look at that again as a cineast when i look at that i don't think oh wow so she was always a palpatine i think they didn't really want to spend the time and money explaining how she accrued her powers Mm-hmm. And you don't even need to, and I'm not even saying that you need to show that or, or do it with a montage, mm. but an audience would be accepting if you said that it took her, you know, months and years to learn all this stuff rather than, oh no, she didn't need to do that because she was always, as you say, because she was always a wizard. Mm. And again, that feels like, that feels like filmmaking from the 70s or the or the early 80s, that feels like George Lucas filmmaking rather naive and it was all right to do that at the beginning of 45 years ago when these ideas were um the first time we'd uh, seen the, them yeah the, the, <laughs> when the, the aggregation of these ideas from hundreds of years of storytelling were for the first time being put out in a space opera scenario with a decent budget mm. um, and being treated somewhat seriously but you know uh seriously but or, or rather i should say sincerely but not completely seriously mm. yeah, which yeah, is yeah. What i, I feel what star wars it. was like you know um, he meant it, but it wasn't meant to be the the basis of a belief system. No, exactly. Uh, and yeah, so yeah, th- through the entire Disney trilogy, um, I've been confounded. I've been confounded by why they would want to stick so close to the ideas of the bloke that they bought it from. They, they, there was no <laughs> longer any compelling need to do exactly as he said, and they had a, an entire because it's really limiting. I keep saying this. <coughs> 
Yeah, any, yeah. Lightsabers That's the and conclusion. stormtroopers. You're right, and yeah. All the normal stuff that people know. Uh, if not, it's not Star Wars to some people. And that's why f- what happens in the future will be interesting. Um, I mean, we'll move on to that in a second. I suppose the only thing, the point just to underline, no matter what creative decisions that they made throughout the making of this trilogy, uh, firing Trevorrow, bringing Abrams back in, don't forget as well, they brought in Lucas for a second time uh, for, the, for, the, for the Trevorrow script. So they rejected Lucas's ideas once. For the whole trilogy, they had Trevor was supposed to be doing episode nine. Lucas came on board to help with just some initial ideas, so just some sketchings as to where they could take it. That Trevor script does have elements of the Clone Wars TV show. They bring in the the Mortis planet, um, which is kind of a convergence of everything of the Force, um, and it really is where it's kind of the personification of the balance of the Force, um, and that's kind of where a lot of the the conflict goes down in the picture, and then. Um, they were still reject. Then they fired Trevorrow. They bring on Abrams, and they reject Lucas's ideas for a second time, um, yeah. and then uh, and then do their own thing, which is, I suppose, another, for all intents and purposes, is a Return of the Jedi esque um, rehash. So, um, I hope he's getting paid a consultancy fee for these things. He is a share. He's one of the bigger shareholders in Disney, so he's still right, right. It, the the money's coming in no matter what. It doesn't matter. <coughs> yeah. um, but no matter what, my point is, no matter what they did, what creative steer they did at any any point it hasn't quite worked out because um return uh rise of skywalker uh had some huge colossal weekend uh drops uh weekend on weekend drops and it also has performed for the first time ever more like a normal hollywood uh trilogy where you've got diminishing returns for each each follow-up um whereas the two previous trilogies um Basically, there was an uptick. So the the first picture was huge. So Star Wars in '77 did um, like uh, half a billion worldwide. Uh, that's not adjusted for inflation. You know, it did half a billion. That's colossal. Wow. Um, you know, half a billion worldwide. Three hundred nine million domestically. Um, Empire Strikes Back was only like a hundred million less domestically. Two hundred nine. Um, and then only four hundred million uh, worldwide. Um, but then there was a big, big uptick. Um, where Return of the Jedi um, domestically um, went up 20% from Empire um, to 520, uh, uh, sorry, 252 million domestic. Uh, and Re- Return- Revenge of the Sith was a similar thing. Um, it was 22% uptick from what Attack of the Clones did previously. So that, that's the point I'm trying to make. That hasn't happened with this one. Re- Revenge- uh, Rise of Skywalker has has made less... Uh, worldwide and domestically than than Last Jedi did, and that's the first time in the history of Star Wars that that's that's happened. I mean, whether that's just a readjustment because Star Wars is now not the only franchise in town; it's um, one of many, many, many franchises. You know, I, I don't know, but w- whatever whatever the case may be, um, you know, this is this is this is the state we're in, and people will no doubt be looking at those figures and thinking, okay, where do we go from here? Uh, and what's interesting is um, when they had the um, the announcement that the Game of Thrones guys were going to be we're going to be doing the next picture in 2022. They've since left, um, and I don't blame them. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. You know they got their big fat Netflix production deal now. The th- those dates are still in. There's still supposed to be a new Star Wars picture in 2022, and I mean God knows what what it's going to look like. But they haven't shifted that date yet. 
but there's there's no doubt going to be people looking at this and brainstorming it and and like I say maybe this multimedia event this summer with this High Republic era 200 years before Revenge uh, Attack uh, Phantom Menace maybe that will be almost a testing bed although I'd, I'd feel like if they're trying to get a picture out for 2022 this should already be in pretty much knee deep in in pre-production right now yeah so I, I'm I'm not sure where where things are going to go part of my disappointment I think as well is that. Um, I agree with you, I could agree with eight different things at once, even if they're all contradictory when it comes to Star Wars. So I do agree with you that it it can be limiting and there are there are a dozen, there are a number of things which are expected of a Star Wars film and which should feature. But then I've always felt that what Lucas did was, I'm not talking about the universe as such, I'm talking about the approach to filmmaking and the the approach to the space opera milieu. Mm. And when Disney took hold of the property, what I hoped, I suppose, was that we would see that approach to filmmaking taken away from characters that we already knew about. And what I'm talking about is it's simple aesthetic things, but that I think uh, define Star Wars pictures and that other films still can't do as well. And it's basically... The 70s haircuts, I know that sounds superficial, but it immediately denotes something as a Star Wars picture. And other films don't do that. They, they don't nail the production design and the costuming as well as, for instance, um, the first time I saw Poe Dameron in the flight suit. And uh, what's the fella's name? I think it's Noah Sagan who's in all the Ryan Johnson pictures. He has a cameo in Last Jedi. Him looking 70s with the, the full pompadour and the sideburns. Yeah, you love that um, stuff. Yeah, uh, to me, that's what that's what made Star. That's part of what made Star Wars what it was. Identifiably, something different. And I like the the puppetry as well, and the character design. There's so many um, creative elements that I really enjoy. Before we get anywhere near screenwriting and editing and cinematography, and I wanted to see more of that away from typical Star Wars characters, away from the Skywalkers and the Solos, which hold no interest to me in these in the new trilogy. Um, I didn't care about the mythology. I wanted to see a, a, a greater level of imagination and character development. Because again, what I'm talking about is we didn't expect much of genre pictures in the 70s and 80s. We didn't expect them to have... Uh, you know, you, you you don't go to Empire Strikes Back and expect Aaron Sorkin. But this property, by the time we got to 2015, this property was so important that it wouldn't be unreasonable to think that they might employ uh, superstar screenwriters. And I know Kasdan had a hand in it. Um, well, Michael Arndt was supposed to be doing <coughs> the first picture, don't forget. Um, yeah. Lu- Lucas hired him. Because Lucas was pre knee-deep in pre-production episode 7. It was going to be, ostensibly, it was going to be his picture. And I think at one point he even thought he might direct that first one prior to the Disney sale. And then he would sell it. Um, and I don't know what changed in that period, but obviously he thought better to make more of a clean clean getaway. Um, and he hired Michael Arndt. And, and Michael Arndt famously, uh, he was just off the back of Toy Story 3 at that point, don't forget. So yeah. riding really high, because that's, uh, that's a good script. I think I know the problem that he had uh, whenever he was trying to write was that as soon as you introduced Luke, that's all you cared about. 
So Luke was supposed to be introduced like halfway through the picture. He he was on an island, just like in Force Awakens. Um, there is the character of Rey, although I think she was called Kira at the time, which is a name that then crops up for, for the solo film. But um, she finds Luke halfway through the film. He's the he, he's the mentor figure, the Obi Wan figure. She has to find. Um, but then as soon as he's there, he's all you care about. You, and then suddenly all the other characters are in, it, it pale into insignificance. So, yeah. so Abram's very clever um, uh, you know, solution to that was, well, we make him the MacGuffin. We make him the Lost Ark, and uh, that's what you've got to look for, the Golden Fleece, you know, and, to, and you only find yeah. him at the end of the picture. Yeah, that was their workaround. <laughs> I think what audiences almost unanimously have found most compelling about the Disney era is the Mandalorian and Rogue One. Now, what I like about that is that they seem to be the kind of samurai-influenced pictures that George Lucas would make. Rogue One is Seven Samurai by Kurosawa. To an extent, it has, mm. it has that feeling, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And uh, the Mandalorian is Lone Wolf and Cub. It uh, is. Shogun Assassin. Mm-hmm. And in those instances, they're what I think Star Wars should always have become much more quickly. A tr- uh, and that is that milieu, that product, that commitment to production design and imagination in production design, the um, the grimy, worn, lived-in aesthetic of Star Wars, which introduced that. Remember, before Star Wars, sci-fi yeah. looked like Silent Running and Two Thousand One. Yeah, and then uh, we have you know it, uh, kind even of... even Planet of the Apes went to Earth uh, pretty quickly after the second sequel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and so to to have. Well, I always feel that Calif- um, I always feel Star Wars: A New Hope is Californians in space, which is you know that's what it's meant to be. Yeah, because it's the, the it's the ideas, anxieties, neuroses of a Californian yeah. on screen. That's his youth. That's his I, trials and tribulations. I, I completely agree that it's hippie Californians in space. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, and, and, and writing. Uh, anyway, we don't we don't need to go too far into that because I remember we did speak about it quite precisely when we. When we were were doing the anniversary show for the Phantom Menace, mm. but I think in Rogue One and the Mandalorian, to an extent, loads of new characters, uh, less commitment to the mythology. For me, I know that Rogue One is precise. Is Rogue One is an adjunct to the events of A New Hope, mm. but the least interesting parts of it were when Vader turns up. The most interesting parts were. A set of new characters. Mm-hmm. Now they look like Star Wars characters. They have some, you know, they have the clothing, they have the haircuts. Yeah. They speak in a similar way. They have the tech. The puppets are there. All that stuff that that makes something Star Wars. Because uh, this is the mad, the mad thing to me is that Star Wars to me isn't Skywalker and it isn't Han Solo or Princess Leia. Isn't that contrary? And I don't. I'm not trying to be a contrarian there. But what Star Wars is is here's a here's a wacky idea for a bloke with a puppet head, and then it works. <laughs> mm. You know, Admiral Akbar is Star Wars to me. Who would have thought that we could be emotionally invested in a man with a kind of fish head sighing? <laughs> yeah. But there is, isn't there? It works. Yeah, yeah. And that's why, he, you know, that character's... And it's not because that character's... Uh, it's not because that character has any character. It's not because we know his motivations or he's particularly well acted. Yeah. It's because of the design around the suit, the face, that people loved Akbar and that him and people like him were brought back for a... Uh... Wait, hold on. Is he in the sequel trilogy or am I thinking of Rogue One? Yeah, he's in the sequel trilogy and he, <coughs> he dies off screen in Last Jedi. 
Oh, yeah, it's like something it, of a kiss off. It's it's not one of its finest moments. You know, I, I enjoy yeah. I enjoy that picture. My only main criticism with Last Jedi is it's it's too long. Um, two and a half hours is is too long, and I think they need to shave off at least twenty minutes um, because it affects its rewatch ability. Um, you know, I I can't just whack it on in the background anymore. I have to think, oh, if I put it on now, it's not going to end until half eleven. Well, I'm not going to put it on then. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, it's it, that's too long. The other day when they announced that um, the new Daniel Craig James Bond picture is going to be the longest Bond ever, as if it was a good thing, and I thought, I don't, I don't, I don't need that much James Bond. Why? Well, I picked up on that. Yeah. Why it's, is it two and a, two? How how long is it? Was it two twenty or two forty? Yeah, I think it might. Have, it's one of the two. There's such bloat. Oh, it's part of the problem as well. That. Don't need that. What I don't know what happened to uh, telling a simple story simply with efficiency. Um, and but then, this is something that Bill Maher said about American culture in general. There's an. It's it's extreme. People expect to be told a story in 12 seconds or three hours. Yeah. So when you're watching the news and you either want it condensed down to less than half a minute, mm. but you'll happily listen to a podcast about it for two hours, two and a half hours, three hours. Mm. That And and that's and it's, it seems like that wherein somehow going to the cinema means, you know, films are now routinely two and a half hours mm. on what should be a, uh, an adventure caper. You know, like... Those Pirates of the Caribbean films became more and more bloated, and you think this is basically the Mummy with Brendan Fraser. It doesn't mm. need to be more, much more than a hundred and ten minutes. No, um, exactly. But maybe, uh, maybe it makes more sense to do what the Mandalorian has done, which is uh, how long are those episodes? Are they uh, forty minutes? Yeah, what's really great about <coughs> it is um, a lot of streaming stuff these days is is a proper hour. Which I think again is a bit right. too long. An hour of TV used yeah. to be forty-five minutes because then you have your ads, right? And that, that's an hour. Yeah. And then when you're rewatching it, if you rewatch an X Files, they're 40, they're forty-five minutes, forty-four, forty-five minutes. What's great about the Mandalorian is I thought oh, I bet there'll be fifty-eight minutes. Some episodes of Orange Is the New Black are an hour and ten, um, <laughs> which is too long. That's because that's yeah. that's your whole evening, you know. That, that's your whole evening when you come in from work. But whereas um, the Mandalorian is, they're thirty. They're, 35, 40 minutes, and, and, and like you say, the, the, the fact that it is you know, Lone Wolf and Cub, it's, it's very much a samurai story. What I also like about it is there's a very loose arc throughout the season, but it's mostly episodic. The other thing, we won't get into this now, but oh my god, I'm trying to get my way through Star Trek Picard and um, with the return of Patrick Stewart. And it's, it's everything I wanted as a kind of next generation sequel is finally here, but it's just not the storytelling that I want. You know, it's this mystery box thing that's unfolding and it, it's just um, dull, really, really dull. Uh, the Mandalorian yeah. to me isn't that. It it's very much feels like the Fugitive or the Incredible Hulk TV show from the 70s where they go to a new place, there's a problem, they have to solve it. By the end of the episode, it's solved. Um, and then there's just this very loose arc of the fact that he has to take care of the kid, um, which which does have a climax in the finale. So That's interesting that we should, you know, having all, all of us seen and enjoyed Once Upon a Time in Hollywood last year, we, uh, popular culture has once again engaged with how television used to be made at the end of the 50s and during the 60s, from Gunsmoke onwards. And that's, as I understand it, and as you've explained it, that's what The Mandalorian is. It's like a TV show from 1962. It is, Like The yeah. Fugitive, or as you say, like Incredible Hulk in the late 70s, or um, where uh, 
Yeah, it's or Quantum Leap was a really good example of yeah, that. Was, where there yeah. is, you know, there. What is it? There's two, two recurring characters, mm-hmm. references to another couple of recurring characters, so that there seems to be a slight mythology with Gushy and such. But really, it's uh, so it's far less bloated. And I loved Game of Thrones, but you had to keep track of maybe eighty characters, eighty characters. And as you say, this is an entertainment. Some of these things, like with the best will in the world, Game of Thrones is not great art it's not great cinema it's very good storytelling it is compelling it's not the godfather part two Mm. and as you say we want something to watch while we're eating dinner yeah it's television yeah yeah, yeah. everybody thinks there's a there's an to an extent everybody thinks they're the sopranos again yeah yeah yeah. they are they are not they are not and it sounds like the mandalorian is getting it right yeah by and large yeah I'd, i'd say that it is um, there's definitely a school of thought out there that it's it's more of a nostalgia, you know. The the, the member berries. I always talk about that. My, me and my brother joke about the South Park episode from a couple of years back. The member berries. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, What's that then? <laughs> the member berries are the uh, little nostal. They're literal berries that you get from a um, uh, a supermarket, and uh, they talk to you, and they'll go. Hey, remember Jurassic Park? Yeah, remember Star Wars? Yeah, that was great. Yeah, and then you start to get into this like stone state of nostalgia. Like, yeah, I remember Jurassic Park. That was great. Yeah, and then and then once you're in your uh, your most vulnerable, they go, remember before there were Mexicans? Yeah, that was great. <laughs> <laughs> so the mem- the member berries are a nostalgic conspiracy to lull you into yeah. uh, into uh, remembering when there was um, you know better times behind you than there are ahead. Um, <laughs> so me and my brothers joke about that, and yeah, the Mandalorian. Yeah, all oh, right, he looks like Boba Fett, but he's not. It looks like IG eighty eight, but he's not. It looks like Yoda, but he's not. Um, I do get it, but maybe if they can come up with a more of a blueprint of all right this is how we'll do star wars for the future um maybe it's more of a segue piece you know they're coming up with a new format you know yeah then maybe we'll have the one with the new characters um i hasten to add the the slate of star wars pictures are blank there's definitely a film in 2022 and then i think a couple of years after that as well um and then a couple of years after that i don't know what those pictures look like Everyone that they announced that's going to be working on them has been uh, pretty much, uh, you know, parted ways. Um, yeah. There's the chap, the Marvel chap, Kevin Feige, is still supposed to be doing one. And for all intents and purposes, Ryan Johnson allegedly is still doing his, although he's now doing his Knives Out sequel. So I really, I think that, I, I don't think that Ryan Johnson picture is going to happen. I think, uh, I think they're just waiting for other stuff to be announced or whatever. But um, the, the, the future of Star Wars on TV because Disney Plus obviously is such a big deal to Disney and and, and such a you know it's going to be the Netflix beta for them so therefore th- there's a tremendous amount of investment going on there the future of Star Wars does at the moment seem to be more on streaming TV you've got the Mandalorian season 2 will be this fall or maybe next fall um, you've got the Cassian Andor show so that's um that's the dude from uh, from Rogue One. Luna. Yeah, that's it, Diego Luna. Yeah, they they're doing that as though they want to fuck with me because I already have difficulty enough uh differentiating between Diego Luna and Pedro Pascal. Quite <laughs> quite a similar looking fellas. I I and I think that I think Pedro Pascal is Spanish and Diego yeah. Luna is definitely Mexican. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. um I like that pivot into and with Oscar Isaac as well, they're certainly representing Hispanics very nicely, which again is another I like to drop this any time that I can, but George Lucas has always been committed to progressivism and di- uh, essentially uh, uh, representations of diversity. He produced Latino by Wexler, 
Red Tails. Many of some of these films aren't particularly good, but he, yeah. uh, in, in his own slow '60s radical way, he's wanted to get on screen every story that he can from every sort of people that he can. I mean, but go back to Diego Luna and Cassian Andor. What's happening with that? Well, my just my, my only point is that th- there's that. There's also Ian McGregor's back on board now for the Obi Wan uh, miniseries, which was supposed to be a film, then a trilogy of films, and now it's for the streaming platform. But yeah. you know, again. I'm excited about that. If it's kind of an episodic thing with a loose arc through, I, I, I could dig that. Um, the only point I was going to make was that if The Mandalorian is something of a segue into a new format for Star Wars, and now we'll, we'll look forward, hopefully, to the same similar format, but with new characters instead of uh, the member berries nostalgia. Um, yeah. <laughs> the only thing I'll say is the next two streaming shows look like they're going to be using old characters. Uh, that, that's the only only point I'm making. That does interest me because I don't mind having, I don't mind having one characters, uh, having the story. I don't mind them doing uh, a new thing with an existing character. What I don't need is for constant tie-ins to um, an elaborate mythology which isn't compelling and isn't particularly elaborate when it all boils down to. Two families that we've known about since 1980. Mm. And and, uh, as I've always said, that's all that they had to say. Given the keys to the kingdom, uh, and given the keys to the kingdom, following a universally condemned prequel trilogy, and a fan reaction which dictated that the bloke that invented it all was the worst place to have any new ideas in taking it forward, they just rehashed the stuff that he'd thought of years and years ago. But... Yeah, I think it's it is a different proposition to take Diego Luna or take Ewan McGregor and make a put it in a, almost in a different genre because I think what's been forgotten is that uh, Star Wars. I mean, it is a space opera, but what is most exciting is if you put that aesthetic and those that production detail and those production ideas into um, Samurai Western, for instance. Mm. And what what are they expecting to do with Ewan McGregor? Would it, would it be more austere? Would it be more like uh, Arthurian, for instance? Yeah, I mean, God knows. I, d- I don't know. Um, f- for me, I, I thought that might be more of the man with no name, lone gunslinger in town thing. But it feels like yeah. they've, they've kind of done that now with Mandalorian. So whether it's um, precisely like that again, I, you know, I, I don't know. But it's interesting. The, the, the Cassian Andor show... I, I hope I anticipate could be like um, almost like James Bond or something, so an espionage sort of thing. Um, yeah, that, that could be fun. You'll have stormtroopers. <laughs> It'll be that era. Yeah, I, yeah, I'd like that. I mean, I'd even like a live-action Ewoks stuff. Ooh, well, they have the cameo in the uh, the Rise yeah. of Skywalker. They do, but uh, you know, in terms of. You remember Caravan of Courage and Battle for Endor? Yeah. Remember Again, them? I, thought... I still watch them. I have them on DVD. <laughs> and that's the thing. I'm the Star Wars fan that still watches, will actively watch the Ewoks and Droids animated shows. I've got them. Yeah. You know, I, I, yeah. I, I will lap it all up. Um, so, you know, The Rise of Skywalker for me was, um, I should say really, you know, my personal review of it was, I, I understand all of the criticisms I th- I think they'd written themselves into a corner. I went in with the lowest possible expectations, and when I came out, I thought, well, I guess it's like a. In terms of Star Wars films, it's like a three out of ten. In terms of films, it's lower. But um, yeah. three yeah. out of five, you mean? Oh, sorry, sorry, three out of five. Yeah. In terms yeah. of films, it's 
it's probably more like a one or two star maybe but um yeah but but in terms of star wars pictures it's it's you know three out of five and um i'm just kind of glad it's tied up and yeah it's it's modular as well you can you know you can always accept i honestly think you can you can you can accept these things or you can choose to ignore them uh you know, going back to Star Trek, you know, there's plenty of Star Trek episodes that are completely whack and 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 bizarre, and they do odd things to the characters that are out of character. You can you just kind of half ignore them, you know. It it, do, it doesn't yeah. mean that it's these aren't the stone tablets that have come down, you know, with Moses. You know, it's not. Um, yeah. You, you can just gloss over stuff, right? Yeah, and it's what it's what people used to do as well. I do think the fan base is aging out a bit. I'd be really interested to see any data that Lucasfilm are trying to look at. And believe me, they will be looking at this stuff 100%. They will be looking at any metric they can about the age groups that are going to see this latest picture. They'll be looking at the age groups that are watching The Mandalorian. Um, They'll be looking at the age groups that are buying Star Wars merch. And I would love to see the data of how Star Wars fans are, are aging. The prequel era, there was definitely little kids that were buying those toys and watching those movies. Movies, and that was their first taste of Star Wars. I felt like with Force Awakens, there was a lot of kids um, into it. I, I'm not sure if that's any longer the case. Um, and I think anything that has been going with the sequel trilogy, it's more been your, your dad taking you to see it because it's his thing. Um, and it's the stat I bring up time and time again. I can't remember the exact figure, but like Fortnite, the game, that's what kids are into. Fortnite yeah. the game has now grow- it makes because it's in-game purchases and all this stuff it's it's made billions upon billions upon billions of dollars compared to Star Wars you know which is which is nothing compared to the the cultural footprint for young people of Fortnite the game and one of the telling things for me was in the marketing strategy for the Rise of Skywalker as we know at the beginning of the opening crawl the dead speak there has been a mysterious, uh, you know, Emperor Palpatine has returned from the grave with a mysterious message, set, um, pledging revenge. But uh, in the marketing strategy, that that message that's mentioned in the opening crawl is heard in some way. It's, it's Ian McDermott does the audio recording. It's, it's in Fortnite. There was an event within Fortnite where online you could go as kids, you could go to this secret Star Wars event. I, I don't know how any of this stuff works. I sound so old saying it. Uh, and and that, that message was there and it was integrated into the wow. game in some way. My point is, Star Wars used to be what all kids were into no matter what, right? Whereas now yeah. they're having to get their marketing messages into something that's way bigger that every, all the other kids are doing. You have to go to where your audience is in any the first rule of marketing. Where is my audience? What are they doing? Well, the audience we want to appeal to are playing freaking Fortnite. <laughs> so we've got to go there. Oh, I, I find that... I find that embarrassing. And over the course of the conversation we've had now, I, I feel that if Star Wars... I feel that the respectable way for Star Wars to pivot is to identify that the people who saw the original trilogy in cinemas are in their 50s and 60s and wealthy. You know, those people have a bit of money. They're the generation that we're constant. I don't necessarily subscribe to this, but we're constantly told that they're the generation that could afford houses and do have mortgages and may even be coming to the end of them. So those people, the people that saw it at the cinema in their 50s and 60s, and then the people that saw the prequel trilogy at the cinema that's us. Mm. We're in our 30s and 40s. Mm. Star Wars should take, as I've been saying, should take that aesthetic, that commitment to production design, and should apply that to something with a greater level of maturity that is not so driven around, as you say, mystery boxes and mythology, but is more like um, 
what was it like to be Obi-Wan Kenobi? If Ewan McGregor's going to play the guy, uh, what were his hopes and his dreams? Mm. Uh, who did he date? Mm. What did he do day to day? In what way was he involved in political intrigue? In a Kind of in a Game of Thrones way. Mm. I would, I'd be completely happy if it became like HBO Show Me a Hero. Mm. The day-to-day running of a city in that Star Wars environment. I wouldn't find that boring at all because the writing is what makes it interesting. And yes, there are still identifiably Star Wars things about it, like droids mm. and little things knocking about. And what I've always loved about Star Wars is that there's loads of midget people. They're wearing costumes and masks, but there's very tall people like Chewbacca. You know, there's very tall people like Peter Mayhew and very short people like Warwick Davis and mm. everything in between. I've always enjoyed that. And if you uh, <laughs> if you make Show Me a Hero, but in that environment, I think that worked wonderfully. And it should work for the target audience because, as I've said, they're mature people. They shouldn't... There's, it shouldn't be the case that people in their 50s and 60s and in their 30s and 40s only want Star Wars, which reminds them of something they did when they were 9 or 12. Mm. They should also... I think there should also be capacity for them to think, I'm an adult now, I want an adult story. I want to see Ewan McGregor on the edge of divorce with two children. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't mean to sound flippant there, but things of that in things like that, mm. it will require quite the opposite of, as you've said, the approach they've taken, which is identify what kids are doing now. And sh- I can't imagine... I, I don't suppose Ian McDermott really cares, but explaining Fortnite to him, <laughs> you know, uh, like, I'm sure. Oh, is that that what I'm doing now? Yeah, I'm sure. I'd love to have known in that, uh, you know, in that recording booth. You know what? I, I'm sure it was just a case of um, uh, you got to do this for the marketing. I, I can't imagine he was told this is what Fortnite is. <laughs> he must have felt like Toast of London. I don't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm coming for my revenge. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, on that note. Um, who knows where Star Wars will go? Uh, it, it, in the words of Troy McClure on that um, Simpsons um, mockumentary, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who knows what adventures they'll have before the series becomes unprofitable? Um, <laughs> so, let's see. Um, anyway, it's uh, it's been a, a pleasure to talk to you uh, to talk to you, Fletch, about it, and uh, we've got some plenty more episodes of OSS. Uh, coming up in in future so do stay tuned to the feed um however you listen to us whether it's on spotify or stitcher or itunes um there's lots more coming up i think we're we're finally going to get our ben stiller episode off the ground and i think you've done uh, another episode as well haven't you um with uh, a regular um our guest host who who, who comes from time to time so um that's going to be that's going to be good fun um in terms of following us um go to onesensationalshot.com uh, that's where all of the action is. You can get in touch with the show there. Um, also, we are on Twitter. Um, the Local Trouble one is at uh, Local Trouble Pod. And uh, if you search Facebook for um, Local Trouble uh, Star Wars Podcast, you'll find us there too. But um, by all means, uh, go to onesensationalshot.com. We've got more and more wares as well. There's a link on there to our shop. And that's how we kind of keep the podcast going. Um, we haven't been asking for money directly like some uh, people do so just to try and help with hosting costs that kind of thing we've been selling uh, vintage memorabilia of films and music etc and 
we've just hit the mother load of laser discs, Fletch. So we need to get yeah. on that. Uh, there's so much there. So uh, we're going to start selling a lot more laser discs. Um, and I would hasten to add that uh, they're, they're good fun. <laughs> I don't have a laser disc player, but um, treating a treating a movie like it's um, an LP, you know, with that gorgeous gatefold artwork and stuff, is uh, is is really good fun. So uh, anyway, thanks for listening, guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. May the force be with you, no matter what shape Star Wars takes. Um, I know I'll certainly be watching. So, uh, yeah, have a good one, guys. Take it easy. Speak to you soon. Bye.
Excellent. Do you think you got what you needed? 